Once again, countryside, if you haven't ever seen my face before, I'm Aaron Miller. I'm the youth minister here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that means that I work with students from 6th until 12th grade. So that's my age range. I'm also called the student minister. Either one will work for me sometimes, student pastor, youth pastor, whatever. I'll take it anything. But I'm the youth minister. And you may know, if you've been in the church for any length of time, that youth ministers generally get a rap for having really short sermons when they get to preach on a Sunday morning. So I'll do my best to get you guys out of here as quick as I can. I'm just kidding. But um, really, though, this morning, um, <clears throat> I want to follow up with what Dan's been talking about the last few weeks. If you've been here over the last couple of weeks, Dan has been teaching about questions that we might have for Jesus, looking through the Gospels at questions that people had for him and how that impacts us, the questions that we would have as follow-ups to that, and how Jesus answers those, how Scripture talks about those things. And I've really enjoyed that series and the way that it crescendoed with the Easter story. And we looked through that incredible narrative, the crucifixion, the resurrection, all of that stuff, and the questions that came with that narrative. But I want to flip those questions around today. This morning, I have a question for you. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Now, I know that may seem like a very surface-level question, but let me give you some context for why I'm asking this morning. As we read through the Easter narrative over the last few weeks in the Gospels, it really hit me, the lordship of Jesus, and what that means for us as Christ followers. You'll find this theme everywhere, Jesus as Lord, um, but it especially struck a chord over the last couple of weeks. So let me explain what I mean. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it tells us, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Now, this is the stuff that we talk about every week at church. This is usually our invitation time. You may hear this on a regular basis. If you've got a decision to make this morning, come forward. We'll talk about that. We'll pray about it. Maybe we'll baptize you. You confess. And usually, if you make that sort of a decision, the confession goes something like this. Um, actually, let me get to that in a second. Let me, let me finish explaining, because when we do this, this whole, if you've got a decision to make this morning, come forward, confess that Jesus is Lord, we'll baptize you, you'll be saved. It's often how it goes, and that's a good thing. We have it that way for good reason. Most churches do that at the end of their service, and, and it's because it's the gospel. I mean, that's, like, that's what we're here for, is, is those sorts of Christ-following decisions. That's essentially one of the big reasons that we do this corporate worship thing every Sunday morning, is to bring in new uh, p potential believers, and then share the gospel and hope that they may make a decision, decision to follow Jesus themselves. We're commanded to proclaim this gospel. So this is a good thing that we do. Jesus made a way for sinners to be put in a right relationship with God through his death on the cross. Okay, so if you've never heard the gospel before, that's it. Like in a minute, that's the gospel. So because of this, when we have our invitation time and it's time to make a confession and be baptized, this is usually what it looks like. Do you the minister would ask, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And the baptizee would say yes. And then the minister or whoever would say, do you believe he died and was resurrected on the third day to pay for your sins? And you would say yes. And then the minister would say, and do you want to make him Lord and Savior of your life? And you would say yes. And then you'd be baptized. And that's generally how it goes. And it may be phrased a little bit differently, but it's usually the core of a confession, what that looks like. You probably yourself made a confession like this if you were baptized in the Christian church. You may be very familiar with that kind of idea, but there's a couple of key commitments that you're making in your confession. 
And there are plenty of things that you're committing to, but two big ones that kind of umbrella over the rest of them are the commitment to make Jesus Savior and to make Him Lord. And again, I know this may sound basic, but honestly, even though we, it may not seem like it to all of us, we have a pretty easy time with the Savior side of this confession. We want to be saved. We don't want to face punishment. So once we understand the gospel, we understand that we're sinners, we need someone to save us, it's pretty easy to say, yeah, Jesus, please come and save me from the punishment that I deserve. That's easy. At least it normally, generally, is easy for us. But what about making him Lord? That's generally, from what I have seen, not quite as easy. The Lord, Lord means to govern or to rule over something or someone. So by confessing with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, we're committing to following his every teaching and allowing him total control over our lives. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times we focus, whether accidentally or intentionally, on the Savior side of Jesus, and we neglect the Lord side of Jesus. And I'm not trying to say that we don't call Jesus Lord, because we do. We often use the phrase Savior and Lord, Lord and Savior attached together. But again, unfortunately, I think a lot of times when I hear Lord used at church, at least, it's attached to the Savior part, and it's a part of making that commitment to follow. And I fear, unfortunately, that we don't talk about Jesus as Lord often enough. I, I think the heart of the problem is our emphasis. It's not a bad thing by any means to attach Lord to Savior, but I think the problem comes when we emphasize one over the other. We may be emphasizing the less impactful one for us. Let me explain what I mean. I did what we in the business of ministry call a word study. Now, a word study is essentially, it just means that you choose a biblical word, and then you find everywhere in the Bible that it's used, and then based on the usage of that word, you find your definition. So, you can do word studies for all sorts of words. Uh, this is where we learn all the different types of biblical love, for example. Just give you a, a quick one. There's four big types of love in the Bible, and if we do a word study of the word love and the different ways it's used in the Bible, we find out what each type of love looks like. So there's eros love. That's physical, romantic. This is the kind of love that spouses would have for one another. Then there's storie love. That's the Greek word uh, it's familial. It's the natural bond that forms between parent and child, or brother and sister. And each of these loves are used in different contexts to mean different things. There's philea love, or philia love, and this is what we have for other humans. This is care and respect and compassion. It's the brotherly love that unites us as believers, as humans. But then in John, well, in, for example, that one, John 13, 35, your love, philia, for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So it's important to know that that's the kind of love we're talking about here, not either of the other two loves. You see what I'm saying? So a word study can be really um, revealing of what the text is actually trying to say. But the fourth kind of love is the big one that we don't talk about as much when we read the word love in the Bible in the English. It's agape love. It's immeasurable, perfect, sacrificial, unconditional, pure. This is the kind of love that God has for us as his creation. This is the love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross. It's unique and incomparable. Okay, now, thank you for suffering through that word study with me. Let me get to what I'm getting to. That wasn't even a part of the points. So that's free. Okay, enjoy that. Now, that's just an example. So the Greek and Hebrew will use different words that will translate as the same word in our English. So it's important to find the nuance between the words by studying the original word, okay? I, I know it's boring to a lot of people, but it's important for us to understand the heart of the text. So 
If we were to do a word study on the words Lord and Savior, just to see not even what they mean yet, just to see how often Scripture emphasizes one or the other, how often they're used, do you know what we would find? I was surprised. The title Savior is used in the New Testament 24 times, and only 15 of those are directed at Jesus. The other nine are about God as Savior, which is also true, so I'll lump those all together as 24 times, okay? And here's why, because the next part was staggering to me. If Jesus and God is Savior, uh, if, if they're called Savior 24 times, do you know how many times Jesus specifically is called Lord in the New Testament alone? 618. So 24 to 618. That means for every one time that Jesus is called Lord, or sorry, called Savior, he's called Lord 25 times. Again, he is Savior, absolutely, and he is Lord, absolutely, and I think our problem is when we emphasize the Savior part because that's the easy part for us to grasp. But that was mind-boggling to me, doing this particular study, because I most frequently hear Jesus talked about as Savior, honestly, if not exclusively. And usually when I find that we talk about him as Lord, it is attached to him becoming our Savior, as the invitation and confession part of things I talked about a minute ago. And this is not a countryside problem. I'm not putting you guys on, on the stand for this. This is a universal big C church problem. This is everywhere, I think, especially here in America. I think we have a tough time with the lordship of Jesus, often missing this important point as Christ followers. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want to take a walk through the Gospels to see how Jesus is described throughout his life. So beginning with his birth, God began to authenticate, to show that Jesus is Lord. Right here at the beginning, Luke chapter 2, verse 11, the angel shows up to the shepherds and says, The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. In other words, this is the Messiah that you've been waiting for, Jewish people. You've been waiting hundreds of years for this guy to show up. Here he is. This is the one, the Lord, the one who was promised to Adam and Eve and to Abraham and to Moses and to David. He's finally here. This is your Lord. Then Jesus has proven to be who he said he was through all the miracles that come next in his life. As he grows older and starts doing his ministry, just the sheer magnitude of these miracles that he performs. You've probably heard of most of them before, from casting out demons, healing diseases, raising the dead back to life, feeding thousands with barely any food, raising, or sorry, I just said raising the dead, um, stopping a storm, walking on water. They all clearly establish that Jesus is Lord and that he has all power and all authority. Even John's gospel, which is the story, the account of Jesus' life and ministry, John's gospel wraps up with the whole purpose of his account, saying that we, the disciples, saw all of these miracles, and I, John, have written this down so that you can believe that Jesus was the real deal and have life in his name. And of course, Jesus spoke about his own lordship plenty of times. In John 13, he's washing the disciples' feet at that Last Supper. And Peter's like, wait, Lord, I, I should be washing your feet. In fact, if you're going to wash mine, you should wash my whole body because I'm a mess. And he's like, okay, slow down, Peter. <laughs> Bless his heart, but Peter, you're not getting it. It's like, Jesus says to him, you call me teacher, and you call me Lord, and you are right because that's what I am. Jesus clearly calling himself Lord, knowing what he is and being clear about who he is. So, through the Gospels, Jesus is clearly Lord. But what does it mean to believe that Jesus is Lord? Well, the same thing I tell my students, it's a lot more than head knowledge. James 2.19 says, 
You say you have faith, you believe that there is one God, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Now, the same thing I tell my students, well, what does that mean? If the demons believe that God is who he says he is, but well, we don't see any of them go to heaven, like, <laughs> we're, they're not our example for faith. What does that mean that faith is? Because it can't just be knowledge. It's got to be much more than that. They certainly aren't our example of faith. That means <clears throat> that there's much more to this than simply acknowledging with our words that Jesus is Lord. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Because just a minute ago, we read that anyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord will be saved. But then here, Jesus says, but if you call out to me, Lord, Lord, that doesn't necessarily mean you're saved. So there's more to this. But what is it? What is believing that Jesus is Lord? Well, we only need to finish that verse that I just read, Matthew 7, 21, to find our answer. Only those, Jesus says, who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Your knowledge has to be accompanied by action. That's the faith that we're talking about here, but it's not just any old action. Don't just think that you can go out and serve and then that's it. That's not the end of the line here. Because let me just read the rest of this passage to you, just a couple of more verses. He continues, on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. If you remember a few months ago, Bryce talked about what prophecy is. It's just speaking on God's behalf. So that's what I'm doing up here. This is technically, biblically, prophecy. I'm talking about who God is and what he wants for his people. So Jesus says, you, you will say to me, many will say, we prophesied in your name and we cast out demons in your name. We perform many miracles in your name. But I, Jesus, will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. And this is an uncomfortable passage, for me included, but for all of us, I think, because it comes at the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is clearly telling the people that it's not enough to claim Jesus verbally. It's not even enough to serve Jesus publicly. And while those are key components of the Christian walk, confessing that Jesus is Lord and serving him by serving others, absolutely, they don't necessarily bring about God's acceptance. The decisive issue here is obedience. Now, hear me when I say this. I'm not arguing for any sort of works-based salvation, okay? I know, we know that salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ, not through us and our work, but through him and his work. But we have to be clear about what faith in Christ is. It's more than knowledge. It's even more than your hands moving. It is obedience, According to Matthew 7, it's not just moving your head knowledge to your hands through service. This kind of faith penetrates to the heart. It is a completely transformed life. And can I tell you why I think this is so often so difficult and so scary for a lot of us? Because this is the part where we move from Jesus as just Savior into Jesus as the Lord of our life, and I mean truly Lord. This is giving up our plans for his plans. This is trading our comfort for obedience. This is the whole deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me kind of thing that Jesus is talking about in the Gospels. This is what he calls us to. I heard it described in a particularly compelling way when I was a freshman at Ozark. It was my first year in my first class of the day. It was 8 a.m., the Book of Acts with Shane Wood. I loved that class. It was excellent. But Shane described it something like this. Imagine you're on a battlefield you're standing on your side of the war, holding your weapons of war. We'll say you're over here. And you are fighting the other side. You have your weapons. You have maybe a flag to represent your side. Maybe you're even wearing an emblem to represent your side. But you are on this side fighting that side. 
and sooner or later, you realize that you're on the losing side of this battle. You picked the wrong team, and honestly, you're not even sure how you picked that team, but you ended up here, and you ended up fighting that side, and you don't know how it happened, but here you are. And the Christian life is not just, okay, I'm on your side now, thank you, and then here you are still fighting over here. That's not how the Christian life works. The Christian life, as Shane put it, is laying down those weapons of war, is putting down your flag, tearing off your emblem, walking over to the other side of the battlefield, and picking up your new weapons of war, and raising your new flag with a new emblem on your chest, fighting for the right side. This is the Christian life. This is that confession in action. Are you tracking with what I'm saying here? This isn't merely a claim. This is a change of allegiance. And this is what the Christian life actually looks like. Your allegiance is to a new king, and now you're going to serve that new king with your life. But Dan has been doing a lot of visual illustrations lately, and I really, really like those, so I thought I'd try my hand at one myself, okay? In Bible times, kings were very common, and as a king, you would have yourself a throne. Now, this is not the ideal throne for a king like myself. If I were truly king, I'd have a lazy boy up here, and I could kick my feet up and finish my sermon right here, you understand? But this is my makeshift throne, because I am not a true king, and this is what I've got to work with. It rolls around, it's kind of comfortable, it leans back a little bit, but not too much, because then I'll fall down. But this is my throne, and my throne as a king is a symbol of my power and authority. You understand, in ancient times especially, if you approached the king while he was on his throne, and he didn't know you were coming, he didn't want to talk to you, he could have you killed. That's the kind of power that the throne held, that the throne represented. And so, as a king on your throne, oftentimes, maybe not often, but it wasn't uncommon for a rival kingdom to come and invade your kingdom. And if another kingdom, another army overtook yours, and a king came in to take over your throne, you had really two options. You could either, as the king, cling to your throne and say, no, 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 this is my seat. And you either face imprisonment, execution, which can get all kinds of nasty, because those kings were very clever back in the day how to really uh, uh, torture someone. It was a bad deal. But the other option as a king was to get up from your throne, give it up willingly, and take a knee before your new king. Now this, this posture of servitude, is the same kind of change of allegiance that I was talking about a second ago. This is taking a knee to acknowledge that this new king is your king, and you will serve him with your life. He is now your master. His will will be done in your life. He rules the kingdom. And I hope you know where I'm going with this, because this is a model for what the Christian life should look like. This is what it looks like. Taking that knee before your new king is one of the best things that you can do, because unlike other earthly kings, this king is the king who saves. Jesus when he is your Lord, he will be your Savior. He promises that. It's very clear all throughout the Gospels. But there's a day coming where every person who has ever lived will bow before that throne. They'll acknowledge that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And my question to you this morning is, are you going to wait until that day to acknowledge that truth, not just verbally, but by your actions? Are you going to live like that matters? Or are you going to step down from your throne and take a knee before your Lord? Once we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, that's not the end of the Christian walk. And oftentimes it can feel that way because I don't think we're always very clear about what the Christian walk really means. It's not just saying, I love you, Jesus, now save me. 
and then going to church every Sunday and reading our Bibles sometimes and praying before meals. It's not what the Christian life looks like. That may be a part of it, but it's so much bigger than that. It's just the beginning. We are commanded, when we accept Him as Savior, to accept Christ as our Lord and ruler. And this is where I think a lot of us as Christians fall short today. It's talking the talk without walking the walk. You know what I mean by that, right? Your actions, our lives aren't backing up our claims. But you can start backing up those claims. It starts when you place yourself in the posture of a servant, taking a knee before your king. And it certainly will not be easy. In fact, you'll be asked to do things that will be outside your comfort zone. You're a servant to your Lord and Master. That means you quit complaining and you do what he says. And that's not easy to hear, but it's the truth. That's biblical. And I understand. I'm preaching to myself too here. Because this is a difficult thing for me to wrap around my head, or wrap my head around sometimes. It's not easy. It is a daily thing. Giving up your throne will be a daily struggle, but it's one worth fighting for. So this morning, as we always do, I want to extend a time of invitation to you. We do this every week, but I hope that you're seeing this in a new light today. This isn't just a decision to be saved. This is a decision to serve a new king. Whether you are making this decision for the first time because you've never known Jesus, or maybe your decision is a realignment, a way of starting to back up those claims you made long ago. Maybe you've already backed up those claims, but you've kind of strayed away a little bit, and you want to realign yourself with, you know, with what you know is right choosing to take a knee before your Lord. Whatever that decision is for you, this is the time to do it. And honestly, you can make that decision privately from your seat if you want to. It can be a personal thing for just you and God. That's okay. But I would invite you to come and talk to one of the elders this morning, one of our deacons, maybe myself up here in the front. But it's not so we can keep track of you and know what's going on in your life. This is so that we can pray with you and partner with you and walk alongside you through this decision. Because the last thing I want is for you to walk out of here this morning unchanged, or maybe even worse, with a change in mind but no plan to accomplish it, and then you just go to lunch and you forget about it. That's the last thing that I want this morning. So whatever that looks like for you, take action today. Make it real this week, because Christ as your Lord will change everything. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so so much for the work that you did on the cross on our behalf to save us the job that we should have done long long ago but the job that we weren't able to do because of our sinful broken state god i'm thankful that you made a way for us to be in your presence but unfortunately i think a lot of us have missed the mark and what that calls from us what that means that we ought to do because of what you've done it's not simply saying the magic words and then being a part of the family although that is a part of it but being a part of the family requires action. We have to live like we are a part of the family, like we are your children, your servants. You are our master, our Lord. God, I pray that we would make that real this week, that you would be above all other things in our lives, that you'd be the center of everything, and that you would command all authority from us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.